Is God violent? Is God immoral? Did God actually commit genocide? These are the questions that many Christians have been wrestling with, and rightly so, because a lot of the stories in the Old Testament seem to be revolving around divine violence. So today, I talked to Dr. Matthew Lynch, an Old Testament expert. He spent years studying and teaching in the UK and in the US and has written several books on this specific subject. He's also a co-host of his own podcast, On Script. In this episode, we discuss his most recent book, Flood and Fury, Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God. Dr. Matthew Lynch, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I saw a friend post um, a book recommendation and podcast recommendation of of your work, and so I, I started listening to the podcast, read about the book, and I just got super stoked. And so I'm really, I just want to let you know, I don't take this for granted. I know you're busy being a professor, author, podcaster, family. So I know you got a lot going on. So I, I thank oh, I you so much. I appreciate that, Justin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but for people who don't know you or may not be so familiar with your work, I'd love for just a brief introduction of, uh, you know, first, why Old Testament? Why is that important to you? Where are you and what are you doing right now? Yeah, so um, I got into the Old Testament when, after being in Israel for a semester as an undergrad, I I went studying in Israel. I had other plans about being, um, you know, getting, um, you know, starting sort of like an outdoor education type program in mountaineering and discipleship. That's sort of where I was thinking at the mm-hmm. time. And then I went to Israel and I studied early Jewish literature. And it just really captured my imagination, in particular, how early Jewish authors were reading and interpreting the Old Testament. Hmm. And um, and that sort of sent me back to understand the Old Testament context more deeply that they were evoking. And I kind of got stuck there. And uh, in a good way, I, I discovered that, first of all, this is a, just a very exciting, thrilling, interesting world hmm. uh, to be immersed in the Old Testament. And also that it's a body of literature that the church, by and large, had, uh, struggles to grapple with. And that mm. most of the strategies are things like, on the positive side, like the spiritual edification of Psalms and Proverbs, uh, and then sort of life lessons stories, right. you know, drawing out life lessons from bits of the Old Testament. And so I, I had this sense of like, wow, there's so much more, and wanted to mm. share that with, with others. And so... That kind of set me on a journey of of wanting to go deeper, to study it more, to um, study it academically. And then I had teachers along the way that really inspired me too. So that they they helped draw me in and keep me in when it when the going was hard as mm-hmm. well. So that you know credit to them uh, along the way. Mm-hmm. And and wait, I I think I might have missed it. Where are you right now? So I'm in Vancouver Regent College and. Uh, yeah, based based here. I've been here just since 2020. I was in uh, England before that for seven years, teaching at a place called Westminster Theological Center. Hmm. All right. So for listeners who may not know, you wrote an amazing book that <laughs> just came out recently, uh, Flood and Fury, Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God. And just to start us off, I, I, one of the most striking quotes for me, I think just in the times we live in, 
was that violent texts in the Bible, so violent texts, are easily misunderstood in a culture that favors sound bites and tweets. And I remember reading that, and I was like, that is so true. I mean, it's recently, for whatever reason, I've seen, you know, TikTok theologians, right? TikTok theologians and Instagram people and Facebook using these texts, disproving like the yeah. uh, God and Christianity, because those are pr- like fairly, arguably immoral and unethical treatments of humanity. So, mm-hmm. yeah. such a important concept. So. I'd love to hear why this book, why Old Testament violence. Yeah, well, it's it's precisely related to the the quote that you drew out. It's interesting that you picked up on that one because my sense is often that in especially in the social media environment, mm-hmm. um, the temptation, I guess, is to try to fight fire with fire. And you know, someone quotes this kind of pretty shocking and awful verse, then you want to respond with, well, Jesus says, love your enemies, and mm-hmm. as if that kind of settles it or resolves the matter. And in many ways, the burden, like the the difficulty is that in that type of environment, it puts the burden on Christians to try to respond in an equally flippant and shorthand way. And I, and I think that's just a losing game. Mm. It can't be done. Um, you, you can draw out a quote even from Jesus. You know, I've, I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, any of those taken on their own out of context can, can just really be shockingly hard to respond to and, and, and devastating to faith. And so I'm, I'm, I wrote the book out of a desire to find a better way to navigate uh, those difficulties. And part of it also comes with a, a sort of dissatisfaction with certain apologetic approaches that mm-hmm. um, that I, I think try uh, assume, sometimes they assume a pretty simple read of the text and then try to yeah. solve that problem as if they've correctly understood the text in the first place. And and I'm here reading some of that work and thinking, well, the, the stories are so much more complicated and interesting and and full of tension and mystery and wonder that mm. is our way of, of writing about that, that is accessible to people, but also doesn't, isn't reductive. And, and so that's kind of what I wanted in this book is a non-reductive engagement with the problem of violence that doesn't resolve matters, but also doesn't just leave people with nothing mm. and, and gives people some ways forward through some of the hardest texts, namely the the flood story and the conquest story. That's where I focus in the book, um, and and wanting to provide a way of grappling with them. Because, you know, like to go back to the tweet example, sometimes if someone says to me, "What do you do with this text?" That's mm. I, I get that question a lot in as a biblical scholar, and my response, my mental response, is often, "Well." To answer that, I need to have like 20 prior conversations with you to be able to get to the point to to talk about what I think about it. Yeah. Because if I give you just my initial, if I give you my response as to where I'm at right now, it's going to come across the wrong way because we haven't journeyed together. Mm. So um, I think in many ways, like tackling or wrestling with the problem of violence is is a matter of journeying with maybe fewer people for longer through those hard texts. Mm, mm. Yeah, because that seems a, a an important emphasis in your work is that a lot of 
wrestling with this. This is a discipleship issue for you, mm-hmm. yeah. which which was an interesting theme that I did not. That's something I didn't expect. Yeah, and and I think um, I think sometimes the reason I, w- I was reflecting on why I tend to gravitate towards some of the problem passages in the Bible as a Christian, and it's not necessarily because I'm in constant angst about them, yeah. which is sort of interesting i guess <laughs> this in part comes with my from my own wrestling that's definitely mm-hmm. part of my journey but also it's because i've seen that if you're able to put the time in with people and journey with them through those hard texts that's mm-hmm. often where a lot of growth happens mm-hmm. and and i i use a i quote a poem in the book that that one of my um, mentors and teachers uh, had shared with me initially and i i just love it the robert bly poem where mm-hmm. He he tell um, he he tells that he in the poem he describes this this farm granary with with like these old boardwood walls with um, you know it's an empty granary and he says this farmer is talking about how sometimes he goes in there and he sees dead birds in the granary and they die because they get trapped in the granary and they keep flying at the little bands of light that come through the the shrunken boardwood walls. And they see the light thinking there's freedom there and they keep flying at them and flying at them again and again, thinking that that's the way out. And then he has a line that says, but the, but the way out is where the rats enter and leave, but the rats hole is low to the ground. And, and I think that's, that's a good way of thinking about what it means to journey through hard texts with people is that, that the way to the light is often by grappling with and wrestling with the really hard stuff and not just holding the shiny, nice, pleasant texts in front of people and saying, here, fly at these, because that can give a sense of false freedom. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so you already mentioned it, like in the book you offered some ways forward. Mm -hmm. Or I think the word you used in the book was like postures to have Mm -hmm. when reading these texts. And one of them that's, you know, so as I invited you to this... I told you mm-hmm. that I'm on a series on Christology, and so mm. one one of those postures that I found really interesting is is that when we read these difficult texts, we're supposed mm-hmm. to you quote it um, read toward Jesus as a Trinitarian. So yeah. I'd be curious, how did you come to that conclusion? Because I'm sure there are some you know like Bible thumpers who who would say like, oh, that's eisegesis, or you know that's not how mm-hmm. the original yeah. author you know. So can you explain some of that for me? Into the listeners? Sure. Um, yeah, I think I think the people you mentioned that are concerned about eisegesis, I, I actually share a lot of those concerns, um, and so I want to be careful about it. And and it is important to me to let the Old Testament have its own voice, to uh, as as Brueggemann puts it, have it, its own sort of awkward, uncompromising hmm. um, voice in the yeah. conversation, and to not domesticate it and and try to to make it fit neatly into a Christological framework. So I'm not a fan of like cru- Christocentric or crucicentric readings, which basically in certain forms mm-hmm. uh, can basically say, well, we, we know who Jesus is. We're clear about that. So let's go back to the Old Testament then and reread those texts until they look like Jesus. <laughs> that's a crude way of putting it, but in essence, that's what some interpreters do. Mm-hmm. And instead, I, I talk about um, borrowing from some other scholars, like a more of a Christotelic approach, which is to 
acknowledge, yes, I'm reading this as a Christian. I'm reading it as a Trinitarian as well. Hmm. Um, and a, well, that is Christian. Um, and I'm going back to the Old Testament in light of my experience with Christ, and I'm asking the question, is there a way that these texts um, do lead me to a life and teaching like an ethic like Jesus? Mm-hmm. And, and I think I'm on firm grounds for doing that because Jesus himself was shaped by the Old Testament. And so, by definition, these scriptures lead to someone or can lead to someone like Jesus. They don't necessarily always in every instance, but they can lead toward Jesus. That's a, they, um, they bear the weight of that reading of the text, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, when I go back to Joshua, then I'm I'm looking for ways that the text might point toward the kinds of values and teachings we have in the life of Jesus. But I'm not going to shoehorn them in, ram them into that framework, and then we also have to acknowledge where things maybe don't fit exactly. Hmm. And so I think it's a matter of, um, at the macro level, recognizing that this is a story, this is a body of literature that has shaped and formed the person of Jesus and ultimately does culminate in Jesus' life and work, even if in every instance I can't point and say, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses Hmm. 1 to 5, give us this nice, neat, direct arrow to the life of Jesus. Look how it it foreshadows it, right? It's not that simple. It's more of a a kind of orienting enterprise that shapes my whole kind of posture toward the Old Testament in general. And then I say Trinitarian as well, just as a reminder that when we talk about Yahweh or the God of the Old Testament, we're talking about Jesus. Hmm. We're talking about the Spirit. And so... It's not like God the Father's in the Old Testament, and then the Spirit and Jesus are in the New. Um, and I think sometimes Christians operate with that implicit theological framework, even if they wouldn't put it that way. But that can be the assumption that the Father's the angry one, mm-hmm. the one with wrath that has to be appeased, and then you've got Jesus in the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Well, that last comment, I, I, what I've been hearing is that that's how people reconcile these Old Testament um, yeah. troubling. And, and I mean, I would venture to say some of these stories are wicked. Like, ju- what is it? Judges yeah. 19 and what they do to women. Like, these are wicked yeah. stories. Yeah. And so yeah. I think, yeah, some people do just uh, would c- compartmentalize uh, the yeah. Trinity so that so they can uh, reconcile with it. Yeah, I had a, I had a student who, who put it one time that she runs to Jesus to oh. escape the God of the Old Testament. And, mm. and that was really... Uh, striking when she said that. I think very honest, and uh, but I think that's that's kind of how a lot of people feel is that you know mm. the that Jesus saves us from the violence and wrath of God uh, mm. as expressed in the Old Testament, and um, yeah. So mm. that's what I'm trying to kind of tease out and wrestle with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of evangelicals, at least, wrestle with that this idea. Mm-hmm. So you began in an interesting spot. Uh, that, that this is another thing that surprised me. I thought you would have just jumped right into the flood, or you know, started somewhere else in Genesis. But you started in Genesis three with the word enmity. And so, mm-hmm. uh, can you just share with listeners why why did you start there? You know, how is this uh, the the first instance of violence in the Old Testament? Yeah. So um, yeah, after talking about Genesis one and two, where 
you know, there's a, in a, in a way, a glaring omission of violence when compared to other fl- um, sort of prevalent creation stories in the ancient world. Genesis 3 is really our first introduction to violence, and I wanted people to realize that the Bible thematizes and wrestles with violence from the beginning, like sees mm. it as a as one of the first problems arising out of out of the fall. Mm-hmm. And and so we hear that there's going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And that that Hebrew term, Eva, is um you know, when we read enmity, it can just sound like, you know, ill will or something like that. But as it's used in the Old Testament, it has to do with intent to do violence. Hmm. And and I think that's why the image then is of the woman striking the serpent and the serpent striking the heel of the you know offspring of the woman. And so you get uh, an image not only of violence, but of deceptive violence, like sneak attack type violence. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, the next story in Genesis 4 is Cain taking his brother out into the field and then rising up and attacking him. Mm-hmm. And so the the Bible is deeply aware of and concerned with the problem of violence from the beginning mm-hmm. and sees that as one of the core issues that that God is is at work to address in the world. Yeah. And and so our concern with violence in the Bible uh, I I, sh- I just want to kind of make the point that that arises out of the Bible's all already kind of concerned with violence, hmm. uh, that, that that moral uh, intuition that we have, that there's a problem here, is something that Scripture itself shares, even if it doesn't always think about the same text in the same way that we do. Hmm. So in, my, in a previous book I wrote, I was, I was trying to grapple with how does the Bible itself think about, represent, and um, describe violence as a problem, like when it's thinking about it as a problem. And then this book is kind of, all right, what do we do with texts that we see as problematically violent? So I I want it to be a two-way conversation because I think Scripture has ways that it would look at our modern world and be aghast at our violence. Hmm. And so at least we can say there's a two-way conversation here. There's the problem of violence in the Bible, and then the Bible wants to turn around, look at us, and say, there's the problem of violence in the modern world. Mm. So uh, it's it's not just unidirectional. Interesting. Interesting. That's a fascinating conclusion. So just to like say it back to you, making sure mm. I'm understanding it correctly, it, yeah. it, are you saying that like part of the existence of the violent text is to kind of reveal the violence within us? Yeah, I think, well, I think some of them. <laughs> sure. um, uh, so I think, yeah, I would say that for Genesis 3, 4, uh, even 6 as well. Where, so that's the, the, the kind of curse, the fall, um, yeah. Cain and Abel, and then the flood story. And that is like highlighting the problem of human violence. And, um, and, and what's important there, and this is where I think it becomes a two-way conversation, is that the the Bible has a conception of violence that I think is in many ways like bigger than our own. It sees it as a bigger deal than maybe we do, hmm. because for 
Genesis, at least, and, and I would argue other texts in the Old Testament, violence destroys creation. Hmm. And like the interpersonal violence between Cain and Abel gave way to the land refusing to produce for Cain. So the reason he becomes a nomad hmm. is because the ground says, I'm not yielding my plants or produce to you because of what you've done to this human who's made from the ground. Hmm. And, and so Scripture wants to highlight the fact that what we do to each other not only ruins humanity and communities and so on, but also ruins the land itself and creation. And part of the ecological like a fallout that you know, leads up to the flood is the result of, of violence-filling creation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I would say for other other texts like Joshua, yeah. I don't think that that book foregrounds the problem of human violence in the same way. So that's a different kind of problem that I wanted to think through, because there, you know, the the story of Joshua doesn't even use the term the Hebrew terms for violence to describe what the Israelites do to the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. You read it and you just think, well, it seems like the writer doesn't see this as a bad thing at all. In fact, it's mm-hmm. wholly commendable. So that's a different kind of problem. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to bring in Genesis 3 to 6 to to allow, for at least for this two-way conversation and this discussion about violence. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you already, you already mentioned it, um, mm-hmm. that Genesis 1 and 2 kind of set this ideal of creation. Yeah. Now... I'd be curious to hear you elaborate more on, like, how did you come to that conclusion? I don't think it's a fringe conclusion, so let me just make mm-hmm. sure, like, listeners uh, hear me say that. I, I conclude to that as well, and I know, mm-hmm. I think, majority of evangelical scholars and even, you know, beyond agree on yeah. this. Um, but how do we get there? How do we see yeah. them as the ideal? Yeah, so... I think it helps to read these stories in their ancient Near Eastern context, and I realize that's not always something that's real accessible to most readers, although you can probably just Google like the Enuma Elish, Mm -hmm. um, E-L-I-S-H, and and read the creation story in not too long. You know, it doesn't take that long to read it. Um, That's the Babylonian creation story. And and it's, it seems pretty clear that Genesis 1, at least, is responding to that story and telling the story of creation, the creation of the world, with a view to engaging that story, critiquing it at points, resonating with it at other points. So mm. that's part of what's going on in the background. And um, what you notice in that, and it's a very popular story, too, I should say, that it wasn't mm. just... A fringe story. Um, in that story, the world is made out of the slain carcass of a deity, uh, mm-hmm. and and so there's there's something of violence that's baked into the world itself. You know, um, to say the world is is made out of the slain the slain carcass of a deity, and humans are made out of the another slain deity, and its blood is mixed with the ground. And there's where we come from. So in both cases, the world and humanity, there's violent origins. And, and that matters because what, what creation stories are doing are not just telling you, hey, how did the world happen to begin? You know, just mm-hmm. out of curiosity. 
But what is the fundamental nature of reality as we understand it? What does it mean to be human? And when you have violence as the story of origin for humans, then that means that violence is a necessary and essential ingredient to the world. Violent struggle and and uh, bloodshed is just the way things are. Hmm. And so you make the best of it in that world. Um, and you even engage in it because that's necessary for upholding creation. Whereas in the biblical account, there's no violence that gives way to creation. You get this image in Genesis 1-2 of of the the spirit, the Ruach of God, hovering over the surface of the waters. If anything, like that's just a not yet state. It's not hostile to God. God doesn't have to slay it with a with a giant divine sword to create the world. And um, he he breathes forth or speaks forth creation and then that begins the process. And then humanity, when they're given uh, rule and dominion, they're given rule and dominion over the animals, but they've got a vegetarian diet. So there's not even animals slaying as part of the human story. Hmm. Um, so whatever your rule and dominion mean, it's not violent toward toward even the animals. Hmm. So, so I think that's where like some of the ways that it it creates a picture of a shalom oriented world or a wholeness and and peace oriented world, and that sets the ideal. For the story that follows. Hmm. So any sort of deviation from that is lamentable. It's a problem hmm. from a biblical perspective. And God's redemptive work, because it includes creation, is trying to restore that shalom that was lost, which would mean all creation, creation enveloping wholeness and, and peace. And so that's, that's why the, the creation story is so foundational, is that it's it's not just giving us our sort of sense of identity, although it does that too, but it also gives us a sense of where the story is headed mm. and what the work of God is ultimately oriented toward. Mm. Hmm. No, that makes sense. That's helpful. And I, because I mean, I've heard that before from scholars and I've read it, um, and I think most people hear it, but mm. they never hear, hear a good explanation. So I think that's, that's helpful. Mm. So, Good. Yeah. So one of your conclusions, and one of them that was like really striking to me, mm-hmm. and I think it was like a, a paradigm shift of how I think about the flood, in particular. And I, you, I'll, I'll do two quotes of you. It really mm-hmm. is like a sentence. First, you mm-hmm. say creation was already ruined before the great flood. Mm-hmm. And then you also say, if God is involved, it is only to facilitate the consequences of creation's violence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I was, if I had been preparing for this and kind of reflecting on that, I'm, I'm really curious. Can like, I just, can you elaborate more on this? Because as I'm yeah. reading it, a question that came up for me is, you know, if that is true, and and I think I agree with you, but I'm I'm curious if God didn't facilitate the flood would you know would humanity have gone extinct so and not like god's involved obviously in the flood story but so how do we reconcile i'm just how do we reconcile um yeah all of this yeah good question yeah so the lead up to the flood story is really important because it sets the stage for 
what will eventually happen in the in the flood mm-hmm. and and what's interesting is this this moment just prior to the story of the deluge itself where god it says god looks at the earth and behold mm. it was ruined and not all of our translations say ruined but the hebrew term shachat means ruined or destroyed um and so and then it said because violence had filled the world mm. so the agent destroying creation according to the genesis story is violence so i liken it to a house that's been eaten from the inside out by termites and so the termites have gotten into all the wood framing of the house mm. and totally eaten it up and you might look at the house and it's still sort of standing kind of shaky but it's a teardown mm. you you can't you can't um put in some supports and and keep that house going mm-hmm. right so that's that's sort of the divine assessment violence had eaten out the structure of the world and because violence destroys creation and so then it says god said therefore i will destroy the world the earth so you have this double use of destroy violence destroys creation but yahweh also says i'm going to destroy creation so that creates a profound tension then because yeah. you're like wait i thought which is it um who's the antagonist here and um so then I, I say there's a qualitative difference between those two acts. So another analogy I use is a potter who is at a potter's wheel and, sh- and, and you know, making a clay, spinning a clay pot on the wheel. And if you've ever done pottery, you know that if you look down at your spinning pot and you see that it's got air bubbles and it's full of holes and, you know, pieces of it are starting to flap off. You can't just patch that thing because if you stick it in a kiln, it's going to explode, hmm. right? What you have to do is return it to useful formlessness hmm. and in order to remake it. And that's, that's what I think the logic of the flood story is, hmm. is God sends the flood to facilitate its recreation. It's like turning that, that clay back into a ball in order to be able to remake it. And... And it's interesting where divine action comes into the actual flood story, like in chapter 7 into 8. Um, chapter 7, once the flood gets going, there's very there's little reference to divine action. It talks about the fountains of the deep burst, the windows of the heaven open, as if like the, the water that was separated in creation is now collapsing back in on itself. Mm. Like violence had eaten out the structure of the world, and now the whole thing is just collapsing back to the genesis 1 to state but god uses that and then in genesis 8 verse 1 it says that he sent a, a ruach or wind from god again to go over the waters and then eventually dry land appears hmm. so it's a it's a restoration of creation through this useful formlessness of the flood that then creates the conditions for humanity's survival, the survival of animals, and so on. So I realize that doesn't resolve all matters related to violence in a story, and my my point is not like, hey, look, the problem goes away. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important to hear how the story itself wants us to think about God's action and what the antagonist is according to the story. 
even if we're still left with questions about, yeah. well, what do we, you know, still, it seems like God's involved in that. Hmm. So, and, and, the, and the phrase, in the phrase, if I could just go back to the phrase, facilitate the consequences, I get that from Terrence Fretheim, hmm. who he talks about, like, he wrestles a lot with, like, the coordination of divine action and human or creaturely action. And um, in the Bible sometimes just says, God did this, and then humans did it to themselves, and you're left with, like, well, how do those two fit together, right? So one way of expressing that is that God facilitated this natural consequences of violence as it worked itself out in creation. Mm. So it's not like God's taking an otherwise, like, pretty good world or, you know, a world that would have kept going fine or was in good shape. He took a ruined world and and just did this as William Brown says, a controlled cosmic meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> then where, how do we read Jesus into this story? As, you know, as a Trinitarian, that, that posture, how do we have that in the flood story? Yeah, I mean, um, again, it's it's not one of those things where I can, I can say, well, um, you see Jesus in this verse, in this verse, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a deeper conviction that insofar as Yahweh, the God of Israel, is active, Jesus is active in the story. Mm. So there's a, a doctrinal principle known as inseparable operations, which is the idea that where one member of the Trinity acts, they all act. Um, there's, a, there's a nice little reference in the book of Jude to, it's actually a textual variant in one of the other Greek manuscripts that actually seems more reliable. And it talks about how Jesus brought Israel out of Egypt. Hmm. And, and of course, when you read the story of the Exodus, it doesn't say Jesus, it says Yahweh. Yeah. But that's a perfectly good reading of the book of Exodus from a Trinitarian perspective, right? And so, so I think I would affirm that insofar as as the New Testament recognizes, Jesus is involved in creation. Through him, all things are created. Um, and so that is not just the original creation, but the ongoing creative work, including the reformative story of the flood, mm. that Jesus is involved in that too. Mm. So we, we, can't, we can't read the Old Testament and maintain Trinitarian convictions and somehow keep Jesus' hands clean of, of anything we don't like in the Old Testament. And that's where I'd, I'd say Jesus is there all over the place. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I see the importance of that conviction, you know, from, from what we said earlier is, you know, people mm. bifurcate Jesus and, and the Old Testament God. Yeah. So. Yeah, it gets you into dangerous places. Yeah. And that's, I mentioned in the beginning of the book, a, a Marcionite view, which is that, you know, the um, the God of the Old Testament is actually an inferior deity um, other than the God and Father of Jesus. And, and so, you know, Marcion was pretty roundly critiqued, rightly so, by early Christians. And I, and I think... Um, if we sever, if we put a, a divide between the Old and New Testament or try to tease out that, like, this stuff's not the God of Jesus or the God who is Jesus, yeah. we get ourselves into a really dangerous place then um, because we're cutting out the branch that the New Testament story stands on. Mm. So we undermine the gospel in the process by eliminating the Old Testament. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
out of desire to solve one problem, yeah. right? The problem of violence. And that's where I think we need a nuanced approach is where we look around and see, okay, I might not be able to resolve this, but I'm going to hold on to these texts in a conviction that, that they do lead to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And without them, um, the, the story of Jesus is lost as well. Mm-hmm. Those are high stakes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you've kind of, uh, I can already hear some of your answer that you're going to give, but I'm curious mm-hmm. what advice or, you know, encouragement or counsel can you give the every, so part, uh, part of my mission in this podcast is to, you know, bridge mm-hmm. the um, academic world to the church. So what advice sure. can you give um, just the lay person just the, or the pastor or someone who can't mm-hmm. afford grad school right mm-hmm. now? How, how mm-hmm. to read these texts, both academically, but also like devotionally. Yeah. How, how can we approach these texts? Yeah. Yeah. That's, Besides picking up the book, obviously. It's important. Yeah. <laughs> Just read the book <laughs> yeah. and your problems will vaporize yes. before your very eyes. <laughs> um, no, I, th- I think it's, I would, I would urge patience, mm. <laughs> urge. Um, and, and so I would commend patience that, that these stories are stories that have been given to us and preserved by communities over thousands of years. And so to think that they're going to yield to a quick read or a hot take is, is we're just, we're going to be disappointed if that's what we're expecting. Hmm. Um, these require sort of slow, patient, careful attention. And Having done that, let's say you do give them slow, careful, patient attention. Uh, do it also with a few other people that you trust who are honestly wanting to wrestle, who aren't going to shut down your questions, who aren't going to try to resolve them prematurely, um, and who you can journey with to to think deeply and carefully. Um, as like Scripture calls us regularly to meditate on this word day and night. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways it's strategically designed to provoke that, to prompt us to read carefully and to reread and to go back over it. Mm. Um, so, and then, then I think you have to think about, well, what do I do with the lingering unresolved questions that come on the far side of that? So let's say I, I give that a go and I'm a year or two years into it and I'm still just having a really hard time navigating some of these complexities. And I, and I think there it's important to, to think through how to live with unresolved aspects of the faith mm. and that those are, in fact, um, a, some of the places where we grow. So growth might be happening in that process and through that process and not in spite of it. Um, and, I think also, and I, I put this at the end of my book, where um, part of our personalities come into this too, right? Like there, there are people who have a high value on tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think for, for people who have a high sort of tradition value mentality, they might find it harder to, to – uh, relate to people in the church who struggle with violence in the text. Well, it's like, well, hey, this is our scripture. Who are we to question it, right? This has been given to us, handed on to us. We're, we're just 
you know, these little people living in the in a modern world, we stand in this great tradition. We just don't have a right to question it. Right. So deal with it. So for I think to those people, I'd want to say, well, there is that tradition in the Bible itself hmm. of protest against God, of questioning God, of of saying, hey, God, you're supposed to be just, but yet you do this, right? So, yeah. so for those people, I'd say, look to the protest tradition. You're going to have to um, grapple with that and relate to it, and you're going to probably struggle to, um, but the fact that it's there in, in your tradition mm-hmm. should also give you empathy toward those in a church who are going through deep questioning. Mm. And then to those who are maybe more justice-oriented, who place a high value on the you know, sense of right and wrong and, and mistreatment of people, yeah. you're going to have a hard time with violent texts. And, and I would say don't, in the process of trying to wrestle with this question, like feel like you have to cauterize your moral nerves hmm. in order to read Scripture, that you have to blunt your concern for justice. Um, but at the same time, you're going to have to struggle through how to live with some of the unresolved aspects of these hard texts. Mm-hmm. And, and dealing with that tension and mystery might be a little harder, because I think when you're so driven by justice, you, you want it now, <laughs> because, and you, you want it definitively, mm-hmm. right? No compromise. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, that's sort of how I would maybe want to address both sides of the church on this, the high tradition value and the high justice value, mm-hmm. um, and, and to be able to empathize with the other in the church on that question, and that maybe you share some common loves in the process, yeah. too. Yeah, so insightful. That's so, that's so helpful. Well, Dr. Matthew Lynch, thank you so much for joining me today, your insight, and just, just I mean, it's an amazing book. I'm going to hold it up again. Friends, listeners, go get the book. It's not expensive. It's not a monograph for $100. No, it's it's very accessible. So, <laughs> Dr. Lynch, thank you. Thanks so much, Justin.